grab a Bible or grab an app or open up your phones. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 today. Matthew chapter 25. Why don't you just take a moment, chat to your neighbor, and we'll be back with you with Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats in just a moment. Church, let's uh, let's get stuck into the word this morning. Been working our way through Matthew's gospel this year. Been uh, on a journey with Matthew as he presents his gospel, as he presents the good news. Uh, written, of course, largely to a, a Jewish audience. Uh, very keen to make sure these insiders know that they better be careful, or they might be just to be judged to be an outsider despite all of their good religious or their good religious pedigree. The story goes that one day Queen Mary was out uh, walking, taking a bit of a stroll. She was dressed down. She didn't want people to recognise her. She had a scarf on covering part of her face and was dressed in quite a drab sort of a, a manner. But she got caught in a, in a downpour, got, got caught in a terrible rainstorm. She, she took shelter under the porch of a, of a nearby house. Um, but the, the, the rain was such that she needed a, a bit of help. She asked, knocked on the door and asked for, for an umbrella. Well, the lady opened the door and didn't recognise Queen Mary, given the clothing and the scarf. And she was a little bit put out, but she, saw, she read it around in the attic and grabbed an old dodgy old umbrella. You know the old dodgy umbrella you've got lying around? You've got the... You've got your A umbrella and then you've got your reserve. She ratted around and gave her reserve-grade umbrella. A couple of the ribs were broken. There were some holes in it. It sort of kept the water off. She gave it to this lady who knocked on her door and sent her on her way. Well, the very next day, that lady got another visitor, didn't she? She got a man pulled up in a very impressive car with gold braid on his uniform who gave her a letter and said, the Queen would like to thank you for your kindness and the loan of the umbrella yesterday. At that point, the lady cried out, and exclaimed, what an opportunity missed that I did not give my very best. That is the theme of today, is people like you and I needing to give our very best to those in need. This is a, a parable that Jesus tells about an ultimate stock take, an ultimate accounting 
an ultimate audit of our lives. It's a fearful story. It is quite a, a challenging story. He actually teaches us that at the end of the day, the final wash-up, the final account of our lives, is actually going to be based on how we treated those in need, how we treated the least and the last. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be reading from verses uh, 31 uh, through, to, uh, through to verse 46. That's Matthew 25. You've got it on an app or on the interwebs. Matthew 25 verses from verse 31. Uh, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. When the, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or, or needing clothes and clothe you? Well, when did we see you sick or in prison and, and, and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and, and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, this is a challenging one for us. This is a tough one, tough language. Father, we pray you might help us to understand it, give us a fresh insight into this parable. Father, we pray that we might be simply hearers of the word, but we will be doers of the word. Father, we pray that my words might be your words. We pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. And the people said, well, what an intense scene this is in this parable. What an incredibly challenging uh, seen this is, to have Jesus returning in all of his glory, separating the people out like a shepherd, separating sheep from the goats. What a wonderful moment that will be when we hear those words, come into take your inheritance, being prepared for you, come into my banquet, come into the sheepfold, come and come into my celebration, into my, into my eternal presence. 
For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison, you came and, and visited me. What a wonderful moment that will be, amen? If that scene isn't enough to motivate you, then certainly the second one should be. This devastating scene of, of, of people being cast out of God's presence, being sent away to, to, punish, to punishment. He says, depart from me. You who, are, you who are cursed. I was hungry. You didn't feed me. I was thirsty. You didn't give me a drink. I needed clothes. You never clothed me. I was, I was sick. You didn't care for me. Get away from me. Friends, if there's a more terrifying image in all of human literature, I don't know what it is. If there's a more terrifying image in all of the human condition. I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know about you, friend, but I can't have that. I cannot have this situation where the creator of the cosmos comes in his glory and says, get away from me, Peter. I never knew you. I'll be doing everything in my power to avoid that devastating scenario. So I want to be doing whatever I can to be on the lookout for these least and the last that Jesus equates with himself. I'm going to die trying trying to fix this broken and hurting world, caring for these least and the last. It's unlikely that I'm going to be able to put to an end all of the hunger and poverty and nakedness, but I, I'm going to die trying. That is, that is my plea as we song Jesus, now and forever is my plea. And I hope that you'll join me. So I've got a, a pretty fundamental, profound question for you this morning, church. How are you spending your life? Are you spending your life serving Jesus in the poor and the needy? Or are you spending your life serving yourself? Getting comfortable in this comfortable land of Australia. Now, a bit of context here uh, about, uh, about what is happening here with this this, this very difficult language, this very challenging image of, of punishment and of, and, 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 and of eternal, eternal damnation. Um, firstly, this word eternal in the Greek, it can mean unending. So it can mean eternal in the sense of ongoing forever. But it can also mean final. It can also mean this is a, a final end. This is, this is no more conversation we entered into. Uh, my judgment is final, or it is, it is complete. And also know that the word punishment here, it's a Greek word, kolaros, it, it actually comes from agriculture, and it means to sort of prune or, or, or to cut off. So the punishment here doesn't necessarily need to be thinking of eternal fire that never goes out. It could be a, a, a cutting off, a final judgment, a separation from God. And we know from Romans 6 that, Paul says the, the wages of sin is, is death. So a final cutting off, a, 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 a final uh, saying no more existence for you. So there's a couple of ways of interpreting this, this terrible uh, punishment here. But, but even so, I mean, even so, I mean, this whole judging thing. We Aussies don't like the judging thing, do we? Some, every once in a while, my daughter will say, hey, Dad, you're being a bit judgy. No one likes to be called a bit judgy. Been a bit judgy about that, Dad. No one likes to be. No one, no one likes to think that they're being judged. 
Aussies don't like, Westerners don't like this idea of a God who, who judges, of, of a God who sits in, in judgment. They, they, they seem to sort of draw back from this idea that there is a God who is going to judge them. Don't you judge me. Well, can I put it to you that we actually need a judge? When you think it through, when you think through this worldly existence, we actually are in desperate need of a judge. There must be a judgment. Any true Christian understanding or any any understanding of the complexities and pain in our world today knows that we must have a, a judge. Judgment must be done. Justice must be done. The great American author, a playwright, Arthur Miller, talks about this metaphysical concept of there not being a judge. He, he has a character in, in a courtroom, as a matter of fact, without a judge on the bench. He looks up to the bench and see that the, the bench is empty. There is no judge on the bench. And Arthur Miller, his, his character concludes that, that he's, he's caught up in endless, meaningless litigation. I don't think he means in the legal sense, litigation. I think he just means the stuff of life. Whatever we are consumed with in our life is just endless, meaningless stuff. Nothing that we do really makes a difference in the end. Nothing really matters. There's ultimately no meaning to life when you think about it. If there's no judgment and you get to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is just or what is unjust, then yes, you are liberated to do whatever you want, but at the cost of having any meaning and purpose to your life at all. People wrongly think that if you worship a, 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 a God, a, a God who, who judges, that this is going to lead to his followers who are aggressive and, and judging. They're going to think like their God and go out and act, it out, act out and be like him, be imperialistic and paternalistic. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth for the true follower of Jesus. Um, the practice of, of non-violence actually requires a belief in a divine justice. I mentioned before, quoted before, um, one of the great theologians of our age, a Croatian by the name of Miroslav Volf. Um, I've mentioned him, quoted him a couple of times. Last time I quoted him, Dave Busso came up to me and said, yeah, I, I know Miroslav Volf. I said, oh, okay, Dave. amazing people we have in this. <laughs> Say hello to him for me. Miroslav Volf, one of the great theologians of our age. Uh, a, a Protestant Croatian theologian, currently, I believe, at, at Yale. And, and given his experience in life, he writes with tremendous insight. He says, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been plundered and burned, leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And you're pointing them, well, we shouldn't retaliate. Well, why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword it takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence 
is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind, that if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not put a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Do you like that? Do you understand what he's trying to say? He says elsewhere, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every, co- and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed. Over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people were shelled day in, day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry Or think of Rwanda, he writes. Think of Rwanda in the last decade of this past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in just 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. What do you think about that? makes sense, I think, when you've seen the sort of things that he has seen. He's saying that our very modern liberal idea that belief in a judgmental God is unenlightened, is really only able to survive in the quiet, peaceful suburbs of Western lands like our own. He's actually saying that belief in a judgmental God actually is what constrains the violence of today. If there is no God who will put things to right, then it's left to you and I to do it. And that always goes astray. That always ends in, it always ends in tears. Notice too in this little proverb, in this little parable, much like others we've experienced recently, it's not our job to tell the difference between the sheep and the goats. You might remember the parable a few weeks ago of the ten bridesmaids. Do you remember that one? five of whom were welcomed into the banquet and five of whom were left outside. So outer appearances, they looked exactly like one another. You wouldn't have been able to tell them apart, yet yet five entered the kingdom and five didn't. Or elsewhere, Jesus talks about uh, about wheat and weeds, about we shouldn't go barging in and trampling on the wheat and trying to pull up the weeds because we're going to do more harm than good. 
the damage done by ourselves rummaging rummaging around trying to pull up the weeds is going to be more harmful than the damage done by the weeds themselves. Trying to tell a wheat from a weed, trying to tell a sheep from a goat is above your pay grade, it's above my pay grade. Let's leave the judging to a loving and a just God who will one day put things to right. This kingdom also tells us about what sort of king we should be looking for, what sort of king we should be aiming to imitate. In this parable, Jesus identifies himself with the least and the last, with the lowly, with the hungry, with the suffering. If we're, if we're looking for a king with his long flowing robe and his crown and all of his jewels and the, the big band behind him and the laser show and the smoke square, if we're looking for that kind of a sovereign, we're looking for that kind of a God, we've already missed him. Jesus turns our worldly expectations on, on their head. But really, you might want to ask yourself, well, why the need for this audit at all? Because when you think of on the surface, doesn't this parable sound suspiciously like salvation by works? Now, some of you will be familiar enough with this term, salvation by works. As followers of Jesus Christ, we don't believe that we are saved by accruing brownie points in heaven. Right? We are saved by grace alone. We are saved by grace through faith. So doesn't this parable fly in the face? Doesn't this parable sort of seem to suggest that if I do all of these things, then I'm going to get a pass mark by God? When we take Scripture in its entirety, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. Rather, I think the point of this audit is much like the point of an audit that any business would enter into. When you're part of a business or even a church, we have, an, you know, we have our auditors who come in and check the books. The point of any audit is to determine the validity of what we claim to be true. The point of any audit is to check the validity of what we claim to be true. We say we have this much, but do we really? What is the bottom line really in your life? What really will you have left behind at the end of the day? What really will be the bottom line in terms of lives touched and, and blessed at the end of the day? It's not so much a case of needing to accrue a whole bunch of good works in order to earn our way into heaven. That is, that is religion. It's a terrible thing. It is the, the religion of, of the Pharisees or of the, the Karens in more recent term. Apologies to the beautiful Karens amongst us. But you know what I'm saying? Those terrible people who think that they try to earn their way into God's, God, God's good books. They're terrible sorts of people. There was a proliferation of them during COVID, little self-appointed little judges. You can only walk down this way, down the supermarket aisle, and down this way, down the other one. Ridiculous little rules and, and regulations trying to puff themselves up by making themselves seem better than, than those around them. So don't judge me, goes the cry. Don't judge me. I'm, I'm not going to submit to, to this judgment. And, and who are you to judge me anyway? Well, I think what this parable also shows is that I don't need to judge you. I don't need to be able to try to think what's inside your heart because I, I can see it by the way that you live. You can see what's in my heart by the way that, that I live. What's in your heart will overflow in you, into your 
into your words and, and deeds. So let me, let me ask you a, a, a challenging question. I mean, do you, do you love the things of this world more than you love Jesus? You can be honest, I'm going to ask you to answer, but just take a moment. I mean, do you really chase after the things of this world, all the pleasures and comforts of this life? Are they really what your week is about? Is that what you actually end up pursuing, really? Or do you actually end up pursuing more of, of Jesus in your life? I think this audit reveals the true state of, of our heart and it will be seen in our, in our words and, and our deeds. Now, you can fake it for a little bit. Imagine if I, one of you came to me and said, hey, listen, Pete, there's a guy that we haven't seen here at Church in the Marketplace for a number of years. He used to attend many years ago before you arrived. Would you go out and have a chat to him? Maybe you can draw him back in to the sheepfold. And I, yeah, sure, I'll go out and see this guy. And I confront this fellow and I say, hey, listen, mate, you haven't been to church in years and years. Um, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you back. And he goes, yeah, look, Pete, I, like, I love my footy and my cricket and, and my golf, but I know, I know, I, I really got to get back to church. And, and, and I, I listen, mate, conversation goes on. And, hey, you know, mate, I, I, mean, I, I, think, you know, I think you've got some, some problems in, in some terms of your, your addictions and, and, and some, some abusive be, behaviour you need to deal with. And, and he goes, yeah, no, I, I know, Pete, I, I love to drink and I know I need to, I need to get back to church and I know I need to, need to, fix, need to fix myself up. And, mate, I, I, mate, you've been cheating on your wife. You need... Yeah, no, I know, I love the women, but I'm going to get back to church. And he turns up the next Sunday. And people rejoice, hooray, the lost sheep has returned to the sheepfold. Have we really returned a lost sheep or have we just simply tried to jam a goat back into the sheepfold? Or maybe even worse, maybe we've even invited a wolf back into the sheepfold. You can fake it for a little while, but it's actually going to be about the state of your heart. Why don't you do a little bit of a self-audit this week? And I take, invite you to take a moment to do a, your own little internal, internal audit. And if you do come to the conclusion that, yes, I, I love Jesus and I, and I, I, I want to be in this sheepfold, I'm going to surrender to him, can I encourage you to remember that there's not going to be any room for arrogance there's never any room for arrogance in the Christian story for those of us that are found to be at the banquet, for those that are found to be in the sheepfold. There's no room for any arrogance or judgmentalism on our part at all because the saving work has got nothing to do with us. It was all done by Jesus himself at the cross of Calvary. Amen? He has done the saving work. It's all been done for us. We don't need to fear judgment. The judgment, if you are in Christ, is behind you, praise God. The judgment, if you are in Christ, has been dealt with once and for all. We have a loving judge that loves us so much that he does indeed get down out of the bench and walks down and sits in the dock himself, takes the punishment on himself in order that we might be set free, in order that we might be liberated. It's none of our doing. There's no room for boastfulness on our part. It is all God's amazing grace 
that welcomes us into the sheepfold. Can I encourage you to, uh, to think about that little internal audit, about the true state of your heart? And I'll leave you with a little bit of a, another little analogy. I, I heard this week, read this week, of a little girl that uh, was being taught, her mother was teaching her about God and how big and mighty God was. He couldn't possibly contain her. And she said, if God is so big, why doesn't he break through? <laughs> Is God breaking through in your life? Does God burst out of you? Does God, is God visible in you? When other people see you, what do, they, what do they think of? Do they see God bursting out in, in your life, in how you treat the least and the last? That is the telltale sign. That is the evidence. That is the audit that proves what is really or may not be the case in your heart. Can I encourage you as individuals and we as a church to be on the lookout for these last, least and the last, the sick, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the prisoner, those in need, the stranger. Can I encourage us to be looking out for them and out of the deep wellsprings of thankfulness in our heart for what the judge has come down and paid the price for us out of thankfulness for all that he has done for us, that we might look to welcome them in, to bless, to feed, to serve, and to love. Because, friend, you never know who might come knocking on your door in a rainstorm this week. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we submit afresh to you. We submit afresh. We say, here we are, Lord. Take my life. It's no longer my own. There's no room for arrogance on my part, Father. I simply yield my life over to you because I know that I can't save myself. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I rely upon your amazing grace, not on my own deeds. But, Father, I do pray that my our faith in you will be evident that it will indeed break out from within us and it will be evident in the way that we live, evident in our words, evident in our deeds, evident in the way we spend our money, our time, in the way that we treat the relationships with those around us, Father. Father, we say thank you that you welcome us into your sheepfold. We say thank you that Christ has opened the door, that he is the door. Father, help us today to say yes to Jesus, to say yes, I yield, I surrender, I am yours, take my heart, have my way, I give my life to you this day and all the days of my life, looking forward to entering into your care in this life and the next. In Jesus' name, all the people said, Amen.